Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Memory Lane Podcast on the DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcasting Network. Very pleased to be joined right now by not only one of the great all-around athletes in Pittsburgh sports history. Folks, this is one of the great all-around athletes in American sports history. Mr. Dick Grote, I am very pleased uh, to have you with us, uh, Dick. How are you today? I'm doing fine, and I'm very happy to be with you. Dick, uh, tremendous college basketball player, two-time national player of the year at Duke. His number 10 was retired by Duke. 1960 National League MVP, won the batting title, won the World Series with the Pirates in 1960. Dick, uh, I, I wanted to ask you first and foremost, what was your favorite sport to play, baseball or basketball? Basketball. Okay, that's interesting because I think a lot of baseball players may say it. Why was ba- and also Dick played in the NBA? We'll get to that as well. Why was basketball your favorite sport? I don't know. I just first of all, as a kid, you spend your life on the playground, and I just played a lot more basketball, and I loved it dearly. Is it because it was a faster paced game? Uh, did, did, did a lot more action? Is that what drew you to basketball a little bit more? I guess because I had too many drawbacks in baseball. Okay, all right, interesting. Um, we're going to touch on all of this and Dick's tremendous career, the 1960 World Series, playing with a young Roberto Clemente before Clemente became really maybe the superstar. Lots of stuff to get to uh, with Dick Grote, but I want to start with the 1960 World Series, Dick, and I don't... Uh, I, I always like to start with asking everybody what their favorite sports memory was. Was it for you the 60 World Series, or was it something else? No, I was fortunate enough to play two World Series. Right. The Powers in 60 and the Cardinals in 64. So I, I, that was, I was very proud of that, the fact that I played on two World Series, both times beating... The hated New York Yankees. (laughs) Going to 1960, I want to ask about your season first before we talk about uh, the legendary World Series. You won the batting title in 1960 with a 325 average. You were the MVP in 1960. Just a stellar moment for your career. What do you remember most and cherish most about your personal season in 1960 with the Buckos? I, I I don't have a personal feeling about it because it was such a joy all year long. I was such a great group of guys, and if I was supposedly a leader, 
they followed me, and they were the best people in the world to work with that whole baseball team. Pirates were tremendous that year. What uh, what what did it mean to you then to be a leader on that team? You had Mazeroski, you had again a, a Roberto Clemente coming into his own. What what did it mean to you to be a leader on that group, Dick? Well, I, I was probably a veteran. I'd been there longer than any of the rest of them, and it it it's just something that I I was a leader on the basketball team at Duke. And I wanted to be a leader on the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team because that was a great group of guys. Pirates finished 95-59 and won, had a tie in 1960. What do you remember? When did it start to come together for for you, Dick, in 1960 with that team? Going start start with spring training, early season. When did you guys know you had something really special? The year before, we had we came out of nowhere after being in dead last place for so long it was unreal, and we finished second the year before, and all of a sudden it dawned on us we're major leaguers now and we are contenders, and we were contenders in 1960. From the time they started the season. The uh, Pirates finished 78-76-1 in 1959. Was it just a feeling as, as that 59 season ended? Was there just a feeling amongst everybody that uh, this group could do something special? I hope so. Because Dick Grove wanted to do something special. And I've always been very fortunate in sports. And 60 was one of those years that everything seemed to go right until I got the broken wrist. And what happened with, with your broken wrist? Explain to the folks just what happened with your season. Well, I just, I got hit with a pitch ball. It broke my wrist. And I ended up doing a lot of fighting and arguing with the trainer and with team physicians, and I remember telling the doctor team doctor, I said, my mother always told me I heal quick. <laughs> he said, there's no chance. I said, oh, I don't know what it cost you to take a cast off, take an x-ray. If it doesn't work, put the cast back on. I finally sold him on that. He took it off early. And he said, I'll be darned, it's healed. Well, you played 138 games, and, and again, a three twenty five batting average, which won the, the batting title that year. What led to your success? You, you batted, you're, you're always a good hitter. You batted 300 in 1958. Uh, uh, so you, you 315 in 1957. Uh, 325, I believe, was your career high. What led to your success that season specifically at the plate? I can't tell you why one was better than another, but everything seemed to go well for me in 1965, or that year. 1960, right. Yeah. So with the team, you mentioned earlier that the 59 Pirates really kind of came together. So when did you guys start to notice in 1960? Again, you won 95 games. You had a tremendous year. Was there a feeling... 
amongst the team? Did you guys talk as the season was going on that, wow, this is this is really something great going on here? No doubt about it. And we were a very closely knit group of guys. There weren't many changes from 1969 or 1959 to 1960. It was pretty much the same ball club. And we started to really believe in ourselves. And I, I give Dick, credit, Dick Stewart a lot of credit. He grew up, came along, and gave us that extra punch for the long ball. What was the importance back then, Dick, of having teams stay together? Now we have free agency, players come and go, um, move on year after year. It's hard to keep a core nucleus of players together on any major league team. How important was it that that Pirates team, you were able to have a really strong core nucleus led in including yourself? Yeah, and we were very fortunate. We didn't have but one injury, and that was mine, and it didn't last that long. So as the season's going on, you're winning a lot of games. You end up getting to the World Series. You face the Yankees. What's the feeling in the Pirates clubhouse going into the World Series facing, as you said, the hated Yankees? I imagine there was a great deal of anticipation. And maybe a lack of confidence, whatever you want to call it. Because I remember vividly how winning that first game of a seven-game series meant so very, very much. When we got in the clubhouse, we all ended up saying, we can beat these guys. That was kind of the theme after we won the first game. But let me ask you this, because the Pirates did win game one. Six to four, and there was a feeling of great confidence then, right? That's correct. But you go out and lose game two, 16 to three, and then you go out and lose game three, 10 to nothing. What was the feeling like? Was was there still confidence after three games, Dick? Believe it or not, <laughs> that 60 team had a lot of characters on us, great competitors. Real believers in one another, and we were able to turn around and win the next two. Why do you think they were able to do that? Again, you're down two. You're down two games to one. Again, you just lost sixteen to three and ten to nothing. But you come back in game four. Vern Law gets the win. Roy face the save. You you beat the Yankees three to two. How significant? We're going to focus on game seven in a second. But how significant was coming out and edging out a victory in game four? Well, for one thing, we had the same combination going for us that we had in the opening game. Law had been our leader all year long. He had pitched so extremely well, and the combination of Law and Elroy Fish was almost unbelievable that year. 
So you win game four, you come back, you win game five. Harvey Haddix beats the Yankees, you win five to two. But then game six rolls around and it's just like the other games two and three. You lose 12 to nothing. So, so Dick, you're going into game seven and you've just lost 12 to nothing in game six. So what was the feeling like uh, amongst the team going into game seven? We couldn't win. Believe it or not, for an athlete, losing 12 nothing is a lot easier than losing one nothing, 2-1, to 3-2. to two. Mm-hmm. There's no second guessing. Mm-hmm. We weren't in any of those games. So we still thought we were the best team. And it worked out just the way we believed. You know, that's fascinating. I- I've covered professional baseball for a long time and baseball folks will tell you the same thing if you lose a game you know 12 13 runs who cares you're you're gonna win some games by 12 or 13 runs and then the other third of the games are going to be the close games and you guys did win all of the close games in that series why why were you able to win a series despite getting blown out in, in your three losses well, I guess our pitching during those those chances we won held us in there, mm-hmm. and so we had a chance to win. The other game, we were out of it from get-go. Okay. Those three were lost. There was no way we were going to change that. One of the great baseball games in the history of the sport, October 13th. Forbes Field, Pirates win 10-9, to outside of the home run by Maz. We'll talk about that in one second. What was your favorite memory of that game before the home run? When we come back, being down quite a few in the seventh inning, we had a big inning. Got back into it and got the lead and turned around and let the Yankees score two to tie us up in the ninth, and then Mass hit the home run. And what was what led your comeback? What led the Pirates' comeback uh, later in that game? The belief in ourselves, which we had. We we had done everything we had to do that year in winning the pennant. Now we better get rid of these guys. All right, so... And beating the Yankees is always a thrill <laughs> for everybody. It still is, even to this day. Um, I believe that's true for every baseball player. Dick, you get to the ninth inning. Bill Mazeroski comes up. His home run has been labeled by many as the greatest home run in the history of baseball, the only walk-off home run uh, in Game 7 of the World Series in history. First and foremost, do you believe the, that, it, that it, Maz's homer might be the biggest home run in, in baseball history? Sure. Why not? <laughs> to come from behind the beach and the, the, the vaunted, whatever adjective you want to use, to describe the Yankees. It's a great feeling. And when Matt hit it, everybody just 
We we, we shouted ourselves. We were so happy. Where where were you? Um, you were due up a, a little bit later in the inning. Can you describe exactly where you were in the dugout, your vantage point, and what went through your mind as he hit the ball? Well, first of all, I was in the dugout. I knew I was a fourth hitter. How much I believed in the fire baseball team, I went ahead and put my helmet on and I, before Mass even got to the plate, knowing we, we'd score somehow. And I was down deep in the dugout. I wasn't on my way all up yet. But when he hit it, everybody in the dugout kept saying, get off the wall, get off the wall, because it didn't look like a home run is going to go out all the way. And then it just carried over, and, and the dugout exploded. So your thought, your thinking, and your mind personally, it might hit the wall? Oh, yes. And as you're watching the ball and you see it, and there, I mean, it's a it's a split second moment, and you guys had a great vantage point on the field. As you see the ball continue to rise, what are you thinking whenever you start to feel like the ball is going to go over the wall, Dick? Yeah. I don't think any one of us thought it ever had a chance <laughs> until, until it actually it went until it disappeared. How about that, and then it does disappear. What have, we've seen photos, we've seen video. Try to put us in that dugout, Dick. What is it like for you and your teammates during that two or three seconds of just unbelievable joy when the ball goes over the fence? Well, for me, there was so much background. Having been born and reared in Pittsburgh, been a baseball fan all my life, and to beat the Yankees, in that manner, they're so used to beating people with a home run. And here's Billy Mazeroski comes up and drills one out of the ballpark and just turned every one of us crazy. It's just the greatest feeling in the world to win a world championship and especially to win one in your own hometown. We're talking 62 years later now, Dick, and it still give, as you're telling that, it, it gives me goosebumps to listen to it. Longtime Pirates fans, or even younger Pirates fans, to hear you say that, uh, again, as a Pittsburgh native, wanting to play for your hometown team, winning it at home, can, can you believe just how that home run and that World Series victory has held up in the grand lore of Major League Baseball 62 years later? Well, especially with people who were alive in those days. Remember, we were the laughing stock of baseball for quite a while. We couldn't beat the Cooks at the Carlton House. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, we grew up. And we grew up as a team, and Mazeroski just put the icing on the cake. Dick, you were an eight-time All-Star. You were the National League MVP in 1960. You won the batting title 
in 1960. You were a tremendous part of all of this. And and I say this with great respect to Bill Mazeroski. He hit the greatest home run in baseball history. Um, I, I think sometimes people may need to remember more about what Dick Grote did in 1960 for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Do you think that that's, that's fair of me to say? Uh, no. <laughs> we've, we've won. That's all. It depends on on how you look at it. To me, Mazeroski's home run was absolutely the end of the world for me. Mm-hmm. It was the greatest. That's for some sp- people, just being a member of that club, for every one of us, it was a special season. And especially for me, being the captain of that team. I absolutely love your answer because that is the epitome of a great teammate. And you were the shortstop. Maz was the second baseman. Uh, you guys played together a long time. How good of friends were you then? And then how good of friends are you still today with Bill Mazeroski? Very good friends. <laughs> I know Bill comes used to come to the golf course. Now... His wife wanted to move to the Philadelphia area because the the youngsters are living there. And I'm told, and I can't guarantee you, and don't quote me, I'm told that Bill is not extremely happy in the greater Philadelphia area. <laughs> All right. Uh, I you We've got a whole basketball career to talk about here in a minute, but one more thing I do want to ask you about is you came up playing – with a young Roberto Clemente. You played a year for the Pirates. You went in the service. You came back and started with the Pirates, I believe, in 1955, which was Roberto's first year. What was Roberto Clemente like those first few years as he was getting his feet wet in Major League Baseball before he became the the tremendous superstar in the 60s and, and, and until his death in 1972? First of all, he always had that great, God-given talent. He could run like the wind. If if you've ever ever seen him play, there was nothing more fun than watching him turn the bases. Mm -hmm. If he hit a triple, it was worth your money at the ballpark just to watch him run. And he has a a marvelous arm. Didn't like hitting cutoff men, but had a great arm. And being able to run, had good power to play to all fields. I mean, he was just a superstar in every possible way. And he grew into a superstar. Didn't take him more than in one or two, three years. He, he he was a good player early on and then really started to blossom and, and blew up in his career in that 1960 World Series season. That was his first All-Star season. In 1960, Roberto hit 16 homers, 94 RBIs, a 314 batting average. Did, did you notice as the late 50s went on in the 60s that Roberto just took it to a complete other level? And, and what, what do you think led him to be able to do that, Dick? He just there's no way he was absolutely one of the most talented athletes 
that ever walked on a baseball diamond. Bar none. Dick, I want to ask you to switch gears here and go back to basketball because when I introduced you earlier, I said you're you're sto- you're one of the great all around athletes in this country's history. Dick Grote has his number retired by Duke. Was a two time national player of the year at Duke, and then went on to become a baseball MVP. I don't believe I don't think that we can say that about any other athlete in this country's history, Dick, that had that level of success, you know, in terms of winning awards. We've seen Bo Jackson, we've seen Deion Sanders, and they were successful in different ways. Your number is retired by Duke, and you were an MVP. How, what do you remember most about your basketball career? (laughs) The fact that every day was a joy to me on the basketball court. I just loved playing basketball. I spent so much time as a youngster growing up on the playgrounds in Swissville, my hometown. <laughs> I, I, I can't say enough about it. Basketball was just absolute joy to me. Baseball at times became real work, especially knowing that I had the handicap that I couldn't run. If I if I could have ran, I'd have been a much better baseball player. Now, Dick, you were five foot eleven, I believe. What kind of basketball player were you? You you scored a ton of points. I believe you averaged twenty five points a game in nineteen fifty two at Duke. Uh, you, you you had a tremendous career. Uh, scoring. How, how did you score, Dick? Were you a shooter? Were you a slasher getting into the lane? Where did your points and what was your style of play? Well, I was certainly very pleased my senior year. I led the country in scoring and I always love adding and I also led the country in assists. Mm-hmm. So you were you were able to score and get your teammates involved. Did you did you take a lot of jump shots? What was the style of play that Duke played at that point? Jump shots, and I, I did an awful lot of driving. Okay, so you scored. That's why I spent a lot of time at the foul line. Oh, and you scored, hit a lot of free throws as well. Then yes. So, what was Duke basketball like? At that stage, we all, I, I'm 48 years old, Dick. I've grown up with Mike Shashevsky, and college basketball is my favorite sport. You were at Duke before Duke became Duke. I believe you're the first jersey ever retired at Duke, and they've had sensational players in the last 40 years. But what was Duke basketball like when you were there? I, I don't know, but I thought we got better and better each and every year. Okay. And. Uh, Jerry Gerard was the coach that recruited me. Wonderful man in every possible way. And he died when I was a sophomore. Okay. And Hal Bradley, they brought him in. And he was my coach and did a good job with us. And we brought in just one here, one there. And Western Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania itself 
played a part in turning around. There were two of us on the 52 team from Western Pennsylvania and two from the Philadelphia area. So Pennsylvania had a big part of the Duke basketball program. Dick, I see you scored 48 points against Carolina. Now, you had a tremendous college career. What was that rivalry like between Duke and North Carolina then, and what do you remember about that 48-point game? Well, I'll tell you what I remember most of all, because things like this don't happen very often. I was still in the locker room. My, My mother and father came to the game, and I did not know they were there. They drove down from Pittsburgh that day. And and ironically, I'm sitting in a locker room, and my father came inside, and I was thrilled to death because I knew I had had a good game. But the funny part about that was when you look back on it, that was a very competitive game until, uh, I, I would say, early in the fourth quarter was when we pulled away. In fact, we were absolutely behind at times in the first half. Dick, you spent many years uh, broadcasting pit basketball games with Bill Hillgrove decades. You saw the prominence of the Duke basketball program and Mike Krzyzewski. W- were you still a part of the Duke family? Did you go back much? Did they did they call you back much? What kind of relationship did you have with Coach K? Oh, I had a great relationship with Coach K. In fact, he came to Pittsburgh this year. I sat down in, in the in the office probably for 15 minutes before the game in in the the Duke locker room for Coach K. He and I were very good friends, and I had tremendous respect for him. Now, Dick, you were the number three pick in the NBA draft in 1952, and you played one season for Fort Wayne. The number again, the College Player of the Year in 1952, leading scorer in the country, number three pick in the NBA draft. What What do you remember about uh, your one season of professional basketball? How much fun it was! <laughs> was it more fun than playing in the majors? Oh yes. First of all, I I was still in college, mm-hmm. so I never practiced one game with them, put a uniform on, average 12 points, I think. I don't know what it was. But I just loved basketball and just playing in the NBA was an absolute thrill for me every time I put that uniform on. And you also played as a 21-year-old for the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1952, and batted 284. But then, Dick, in 1953 and 54, you went off to the military. 
And again, folks, when I say Dick Grote has a, an incredible story, it, this this is remarkable because this is stuff we're not going to hear anymore in, in, in the modern era going forward. You missed two seasons in the military. Can can you describe that time in your life? Did did you enlist? Were you drafted? What uh, what led to that military service? I knew I was going to be drafted, so I, I went into service knowing I would come out. Just before spring training, John. Okay. So you go in to enlist. Where were you stationed? What was your military career and service? I was stationed in Washington D.C. Okay. What to, what, what what branch were you in? In the Army. And so again, we'll we'll never see modern day athletes enlist in the military again, Dick. That's just not really what what's going to happen in the modern day with athletes, but. Was that relatively common back then? Well, I don't know. I just know that I I was going to have to go. I was going to be drafted one way or the other. Why wait another week, two, maybe a month, and then I would be getting out right in the middle of baseball season or something. So when the time came, I just said, I'm going in the Army and get out of this thing. When you came back... You came back to baseball, and you enjoyed a tremendous major league career. You did not come back to basketball. What led to that decision? <laughs> Mr. Mr. Rookie said, I have played your, you have played your last game in the NBA. So Branch Rickey forced that decision on you? Oh, yes. I, I would never give up basketball. Had, I, I know it. I lost the rest of my bonus. I mean, he he played hardball. What? And you had no, you had no recourse to to fight it at that time. Did did, did you have any opportunity to stay with basketball, or was sure, that just? I could have gone on with basketball. Lost the rest of my bonus. But Branch Rickey wasn't having any part of that. No. <laughs> How did you feel? Okay, let's ask two questions here because I'm. I'm. Uh, this is this is really fascinating. How did you feel at the time? Were you outraged? I was heartbroken. I first of all, I had mixed emotions. I could have hated Mister Rickey, but I also worshipped him for his having given me the opportunity to sign when I came out of college and go right to the major leagues, never having played a day in the minor leagues. So I owed him a great deal for giving me that opportunity. And that first year, I hit 280-something. So I earned my way to the big leagues. Mm Mm-hmm. And one point that Dick just said there, never played in the minor leagues, which is was rare. It was even even rare then. Okay, so here we are, all these years later. Is there bitterness, frustration, anger at Branch Rickey now, or did you make peace with it that he didn't let you play basketball again? Absolutely, I made peace with it. The man gave me my opportunity in baseball. I guess in his mind, 
the human body can't take that constant beating, but I thought mine would, even though it's harder in the professional ranks because it's a lot longer grind in both basketball and baseball. Now, nowadays, you can make tons of money playing baseball or tons of money playing basketball. What was it like at that stage in the 50s, Dick? Was there more money in baseball, more money in basketball? Would, would you, could, could you have had a, a better financial future in one sport or the other? Well, baseball, baseball paid you the bonus. Okay. For basketball, they didn't have to give you a big bonus. They draft you. So you played one season in the NBA. Again, Dick Grote was the number three pick in the NBA draft. If you, okay, if you could have played in the NBA, what kind of in for for 10, 15 years, what kind of player do you think you would have been? That's a good question. My love for basketball was, I love being a the guy that, that that made things happen on the court, that led the league, or led the league or his team in assists, and also had the ability to score in double figures. I enjoyed all of that. And you mentioned a couple times you enjoyed playing basketball more than baseball, but you did go on to have a tremendous baseball career with many accolades. Um, is, is there any regret looking back on it that you, would you have liked to have played, at least tried both for a few more years just to see maybe which one would have worked out? Obviously, I would have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No doubt. I, I, that, that's a good question because I have thought many times about I wonder how I would have reacted had I been able to play three years back-to-back in both sports. What an amazing athletic career. We're, again, we're, we don't see this often. We, we've seen Bo Jackson. We've seen Deion Sanders, Brian Jordan, Danny Ainge played in the NBA and played Major League Baseball. Dick Grote, National College Player of the Year in basketball at Duke, number retired by Duke. MVP in 1960, the year the Pirates won the World Series, won a batting title. Sir, it's it's been a pleasure to talk with you about all of this because your story is is truly amazing, and I I I I just think it's incredible the success you were able to have at an elite level in two very very different sports. That's that's quite an accomplishment. I thank you for all those nice words. I, I, one thing, last thing I want to ask you is you, you broadcast Pitt men's basketball for many, many years. How much did you enjoy that? You got to see uh, the the growth of the Big East. You got to see the Pitt men's basketball program become a national power. I, I will tell you personally, I'm a Syracuse basketball fan, so I got to see it from the flip side where Pitt was beating Syracuse all the time. But how much did you enjoy your basketball broadcasting career and seeing some of the great things Pitt did, you know, somewhat in the eighties and nineties, but then certainly under Ben Howland and Jamie Dixon. Oh, I loved I loved broadcasting Pitt basketball and it was an absolute joy just to sit next to Bill Hillgrove, 
who I consider the best play-by-play announcer I have ever heard or watched in both football and basketball. Do you have a, a favorite Pitt basketball memory? Jerome Lane breaking the rim or, or Pitt advancing deep into an NCAA? Do you have a, a favorite memory at all? Not particularly because basketball was a joy to me every day I walked into that field house. And one last thing. What are you up to nowadays, Dick? I, I always like to uh, let the folks know uh, what what uh, uh, this is a memory lane podcast that we talk about a lot of memories, but what are you up to at these at this stage in your life? Well, back 50-some years ago, 53 to be exact, 54, Jerry Lynch and I designed and rebuilt and, re- and built a golf course here in Lincoln Air, mm-hmm. which I still run. Are you still there a good I'm bit? I'm still there. Again, I've I lost my equilibrium, so I can't play golf anymore as much as I loved it. But I'm very proud of this golf course. It's one of the best golf courses you could get on. Do you still have the pit football golf outing there, Dick? Oh, yeah. I went to that a good 15, 20 years ago. Tony Dorsett was there. Personal story here. I'm from Arkansas. I grew up as a Cowboys fan. I had Tony Dorsett's number 33 jersey, and I went to your golf course 20 years ago. Tony showed up. He wasn't playing, so he sat at a table with a couple of us reporters and just talked with us for an hour. It was it told some of the greatest stories. It's it's one of the greatest sports highlights of my life. I wore a Tony Dorsett number 33 Cowboys jersey as a kid, and I got to ask him about the 99-yard touchdown run all at your golf course. So you, you've had many a superstars and celebrities come through that golf course. Well, we're very happy to have them, and I still enjoy the everyday fan that comes in and still plays this golf course. It's been a pleasure. I greatly appreciate you taking the time to share your stories, Dick. Thank you so very much. I enjoyed it, and thank you very much. It was a very easy and nice interview, and I've enjoyed your company. Thank you, sir.